Today's guest is Salem Abraham. Abraham Trading is an investment management company managed by Salem. Salem has been featured in Michael Covell's books, The Complete Turtle Trader and Trend Following. He has also appeared in Bloomberg Markets, Absolute Return, Barron's, and The New York Times. Salem, welcome to the podcast. You bet. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you today. You know, um, I want to tell you that you had a great influence on my uh, trading life, and, but I want to ask you in terms of your background, um, how you got started and maybe even take, it, take us back to your first investment. Wow. First investment. Well, you know, my first investment um, was in eighth grade when the silver, so this is 1980, silver's going through the roof, gold's going through the roof. And I bought, um, I bought a one ounce bar, one ounce ingot of silver from one of my friend's dads. And I paid $42 for it. And, um, and the funny thing was, is it, it, um, I had to wait almost, I think it was 27 years later. Um, I had some of the guys in my office bought some silver coins and they paid like $45 an ounce. But I I was so happy. I told them, I said, it's been, I I said, I topped the market in 1980. 1980, And so it's taken 27 years to find someone dumber than me to pay more than $42 an ounce. So, so yeah, so that was the first bad trade, the first trade, and it was it was not the best trade. So, so you got so you got into trading early at eighth grade. That's pretty interesting. Eighth grade, yeah, and I was I was trend following, I guess, but I got I got in way too late. <laughs> so I was I yeah. Once I got in the market, I was the last sucker to get in. So yeah. And t- talking about trend following, you know, I had a chance to listen to a couple of your speeches that you gave at the um, cattle conference, and so I listened to both of your speeches. Um, I think from both the years, and I took down some notes, and I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on these concepts. So one of them was you mentioned don't don't bet more than twenty five percent of your net worth, no matter how good it is. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on why did you say that to sure. not bet no no more than twenty five percent? Yeah, I just that's to me, you know, the biggest. The most important thing as an investor um, is to not go broke, you know, and then you're out of the game and, um, you know, it's kind of like dying. You only get to die once. So so don't do that. You know, don't do that any sooner than you have to. Um, But eventually, I guess we we don't get out of this life alive, but we we can get out of this life not having gone broke. And so. you know, I just think it's important to make sure you don't ever bet too much. I've I've had several deals, I'd say, I don't know, six or eight deals that I thought were absolute sure things. And right. and every one of them worked. But um but I didn't ever, even though I was I, I couldn't see how they wouldn't work, I I just think it's important, you know, it's I, I think of the 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 idea of someone that's right 99 out of a hundred times, but you bet the ranch every time. Well, if you bet the ranch every time that what you call that guy is broke because eventually he's broke because he bets the ranch every time. So he's a, you can see where someone is, is 
in the way they trade, they're a brilliant trader. Anybody who wins 99% of the time is a brilliant trader. Well, you also have to be a really good risk manager. And, and you can, and, and so if you don't have both of those, then you can end up broke. You need to be a good trader and you need to manage risk. And both of those are really, in a way, they're somewhat, they're separate areas of study and you need to really analyze both of them. So, but just takes one trade to, you know, it's like getting dead, you know, it just takes one right. bad decision and you're dead or you're broke. And so you've got to be really careful never to make that bad decision. And in terms of risk management, um, one of the other things you mentioned in that conference is, you know, focus on the wor worst case scenario and make sure you're comfortable with it happening. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on that concept? Sure. Yeah. They, the, so I think a lot of times worst case is good to go back. Um, you know, and that, at that time I was talking to a bunch of cattle guys who are in our yes. area and in our area, we have oil and gas and cattle um, here, this part of Texas out in the country. And so they, I think it's interesting to look back over time because you, you just, uh, you, you kind of imagine, um, I, th I think it's kind of like coronavirus, which we're in the middle of the coronavirus now. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's, it's something no one alive today has really had to deal with, I guess, unless you're over 102, um, you know, the last real pandemic was 1918. And, yeah. um, and so, so you, you kind of have this frame of reference that most of us have, but then you say, well, what's worst case? And and then worst case for the cattle business was the depression um, back in the thirties. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, so to go back and to say, all right, what happens if that, if that were to happen again, cause it could happen again, you know, if someone's going to be, you know, say they have a, you know, a 50 year working life, you know, if you say you, you know, at, at 22, you go to work and you live to be 72, and work that time, you'd say, okay, over 50 years, you know, you got a 50-50 chance of, say, the Great Depression happening, or, and right. you look at some big cattle crashes. And so you've got to know, you, you kind of got to look at the 100-year flood, in, in a sense, like, what is the equivalent of the 100-year flood in, in the business I'm in? And the coronavirus, in a way, is that. And you just right. got to say, do you have a plan for that? You know, and we have a plan I would say we have a plan. A lot of things, it's it's socially acceptable, I think, to have a plan, like like uh, fire insurance on your house. The odds of your house burning down in any one year, based on what I've done, is about 400, one out of 400 chance. Mm -hmm. And you and But the odds of, say, a big, you know, say, uh, you know, like a, like a pandemic about once every 100 years, and maybe even more often than that, you get a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, once we got antibiotics, we, we limited a lot of pandemics we can take care of with antibiotics. But um, so you you say once every hundred years for pandemics, you, you just got to go through and you've got to say, are you, are you ready for this? It's a little like, you know, um, like when we leave the driveway, we do a seatbelt. We, we put a seatbelt on if we're being safe and you probably need your seatbelt once or twice in your life. And, and it's sort of like that. Are you ready for the worst case scenario in your car? And you go, yeah, I've got my seatbelt. I've got a safe car. I've got my airbags. I've got, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to not speed. So you're planning for a worst case event. But I think with investments, sometimes we just, I think the real problem with most financial people is they tend to focus on averages and that can kill you. You know, you look at, um, you know, like the average temperature in the Sahara desert, 
like 76 degrees, um, you know, it can get very cold and get very hot. Um, but it, but so if you, if you go for it, if you're looking at averages, a lot of times you fail to prepare for what is going to kill you. And so, right. so that's, you really have to say, I'm, I need to plan for this worst case event that probably happens to me once in my, you know, in my working life and um, the 50 year period. And I'm, I've got to have that seatbelt on, so to speak. And I'm going to, you know, and, and it's, there's no mathematical formula. There's, it's just trying to figure out how do, what could it be? How bad can it be? And then when you study worst case events, you say, wow, like, you, you know, like the depression, you look at oil, it went 80% down in the depression or cattle went about 80% down. And you look at some things that you, you think, wow, that's just unbelievable. But it's, but you've got to know it can happen again. And in terms of that, I, I, I wasn't sure if you were the one that presented this. There was um, a picture of a house that was standing after a hurricane. Right. And, and that was the only one that was standing and I didn't know what that family or what that owner of that house did differently. Right. Well, so yeah, you see, so it's a Texas coastline and after hurricane and this one white house standing and I'd seen it on a uh, news something. And I, and so I thought, Oh, that's Photoshopped. It looks Photoshopped. Well, then you go, right. I went looking for it and found pictures of the house and then researched it. And it's this, uh, this husband and wife, they had had a house that it was their, their house had been destroyed by a hurricane about five or 10 years before. And so they built a new house. Well, when they built the new house, they built the house to withstand a hurricane. And, mm -hmm. and it did. And here you see this coastline on Texas where, you know, as far as the, the picture shows, you see everything's destroyed in this one white house. And it's beat up a little bit. If you zoom in on it, you'll see it was beat up a little, but it was still standing. And so the, and it's a simple concept. It was, it struck me. It's like, well, that's what you got to do in the markets. You got to, you have to build your house with the hurricane in mind. And that's what that guy did and his wife and it works. And it's, you like, well, that's, that shouldn't be that hard really, but you've got to study hurricanes. If you want right. to, if you want to, you, you become a student of hurricanes and, and, and in the finance world, you say, I've got to really look at all the financial hurricanes that happen and try to figure out how do I have a portfolio that can withstand those storms. And talking about, you know, very simple concepts, one of the other takeaways from that conference was um, you mentioned wait, be patient and be ready for not good deals, but be ready for great deals. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you was oftentimes I find myself being on the sidelines with cash because I'm not finding those great deals. And it, when you're running your own fund, how do you explain to clients when you're not, when someone's not in the market all the time or you're waiting for those great deals? Well, I think with clients, I, th I think you bring up a good point. It's hard to do that with clients. And what I, what I've always done on my trading is with trading, you, there's an element of trading that you have with our trading. Well, we always did with um, our quantitative trading. You, you end up doing both good deals and great deals with a lot of times on trading because you have to be the, your clients expect you to be, you know, taking advantage of all the opportunities that come. And then there's a, there's this law of large numbers because you're working the averages and, 
you know, you, you end up taking both good deals and great deals in trading. I will say, so a lot of times you can't, you, you get in some, some, I say investment situations, you can't do that. But where, where I was talking about it at that time was it was, um, you can't really have, um, on your personal finances. Oftentimes you would, you'd be better off, I think, just waiting and getting into less deals. And so I think that has to do with more like a big deal that would say tie up a big chunk of your money. You know, maybe it's, mm -hmm. maybe it's, you know, 25% of your money. You say, okay, here's a big deal. Let me do that deal. But, um, but you don't want to do too many deals. You know, um, Warren Buffett talks about that too. He's talking about a coupon book. And, um, mm -hmm. and so, and, and where I saw it was my grandfather, when I got out of college, um, we were looking for, uh, really it was distressed ranch land. They were selling ranch land was at distressed prices and it was kind of a fix and flip on ranches. And I, and I'd worked for him for four months, which seemed like a long time when you're 22 years old. And, and I said, we hadn't done a deal, granddad. I said, come on. And there was an opportunity to basically buy a ranch at about 85 cents on the dollar. And he said, no, no, that's a good deal, but we don't do good deals. We do great deals. And he said, you know, you need, and I said, well, come on, we hadn't done anything. Nothing's going to come along. He said, right. well, you, you know what? You need to get a hobby. You just need to get a hobby. <laughs> you just need to relax because we don't have our money tied up in a good deal when this great deal comes along. And so he, you know, and well, six weeks later, we had this great opportunity. A bank calls us up had taken a, a ranch in and uh in a deed in lieu of foreclosure and they wanted quick cash and they were looking for someone to buy it and so they sold it to us you know it was probably 60 cents on the dollar and um and it worked out great so you know it, it he it made an impression on me that um so but it was more i would say it's more kind of the bigger deals that top your money now when because when we're trading in the markets we've got you know you're putting just a small very fraction of a percent risk owning all these trades and you it's it's really a game of of averages and law of large numbers and and then risk management overlaying on it and talking about you know your granddad telling you to sitting sit tight you know i recall reading uh, jesse livermore's book um where he's talking about you know what made me money was not being active but actually sitting tight and i i re i I wonder whether you had a chance to um, read that book or elaborate a little bit more on sitting. Yeah, no, the Jesse Livermore book, the what the what's something of a speculator. Um, yeah, reminiscence. reminiscence. Yeah, reminiscence. Yeah, no, great book, and it's been a long time since I've read it. But no, he he, there's a lot of good advice in that book, I think, and um, and no, I believe that you know we. Whenever we traded less, you know, is when we made the most money in, but, but it, mm. but it's because you were, you weren't trading because you liked the trade. You know, that's a trend following concept is to sit, you know, if a market goes up, 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 you stay in it until you see it weaken. But as you know, if a mark, you know, in a trend following system, if a market went up every day, you would never get out. You would just stay in most trend following systems. Right. Now, some have some different ways of getting you out that might get you out, but but, a, but just kind of a real robust long-term trend following system. You just say, no, you stay in it. You don't get out. So there's, I agree with that. Um, and yeah, no, the hard, and that's oftentimes the hardest thing to do is when you've made money in the markets, you've got this, uh, we'll call it a paper profit. 
it's it's always yes. nice to ring the cash register, but that's oftentimes the that's the wrong thing to do because oftentimes you've got them right where you want them. You just got to stay with it. Right, because you don't know how high right. it can go. Yeah, no, that's one thing and why trend following works is um, and there's some interesting tests where you can you can really take a test. Uh, it's an estimation test and you say, OK, what's like uh, I've, you, I've seen it um, too. I've seen it. Um, Bill Eckhart did the test when I did it back mm -hmm. in 1992. I'd seen him give I was in a room full of traders and he gave us the test and it was fascinating then. And then um, we I've seen, um, oh, um, Bob Schiller. If you go online, you can go to those Yale um, online um, courses. courses. Yeah. What, yeah. Mokes, whatever they call them, I forget. But the, but you, you, he did two of his finance classes are recorded where they recorded the lectures for the semester. And um, they're at your, your school, Yale. So he um, he has one class that's about um, basically it's behavioral finance. And one of the things he does yeah. in it in the behavioral finance lecture is this test. And it's 10 questions. And your goal is to, you know, to answer the question and have a range. It's every, every answer is, in, is numbers. So, so you say like, mm -hmm. what's the, the, um, you know, the distance between the earth and the moon? in miles and you say okay it's between zero and an infinity now narrow up zero and infinity to where you're 90 percent sure that the answer lies within the range well almost everybody that does the test and and i was in a room full of traders when i took the test there are probably 30 traders that are all you know half of them are legendary traders now they um we all took the test and you, I missed, I think I missed seven of the 10. I think the average was probably six of the 10 that every one of us, we narrow up the range too much and we're overly confident in our ability to estimate what the answer should be. And so what mm -hmm. I think that indicates is our ability to imagine prices, you know, really wide. Like, can we imagine, say, $2,000 crude oil or two cent crude mm -hmm. oil? And, you know, and or negative 37 like we had. So you you can't quite imagine these the extremes that the markets can go to. You know, I think coronavirus or things like that or 9-11, there's events that happen that you just can't imagine, you know, tsunamis or earthquakes. or So you you the point is with trend following is things can go further than than most people think. Therefore, get on board and 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 stay with it. And talking about trend following, you know, oftentimes you, you hear from efficient about efficient market hypothesis. You know, you can't really beat the market, but there there is some research by which I recently read by Dr. Um, Jagdish and Dr. Titman, which talks about this anomaly within what they call momentum investing, which probably synonymous with trend following. Why do you think there is that anomaly? with trend following and momentum. Investing. I think it's you're, you're tapping into human psychology. And I think it's that um, there's several things at work um, together that people fight movement. Um, people are more willing to take a profit than they are to take a loss. And those things all combined together tend to work to slow movement of a market 
where it may want to, you know, say if crude oil is wanting to go from $30 to $100, there'll be people that will slow that movement down and, you, and you've got time as a trend follower to get on board. So, And that's sort of the behavioral economics, behavioral finance right. part of the equation. Got it. Um, I, I just want to step back a little bit in terms of what you had mentioned with, with risk on uh, risk mitigation. With, with your firm, um, are you using some like Kelly formula or Kelly criterion to reduce risk? Or what are you using to reduce risk? No, well, we, um, we, we try to, you know, it's basically diversification, trying to balance out risk. Um, I don't know a lot about the Kelly formula. I've, re I've read a little bit about it, um, have, but it's, you know, one of the things that I think the Kelly criterion does is it's more it, it's more of a gambling based strategy isn't it more yeah. that's right it came from that yeah that's and so one of the things with a lot of gambling strategies in that they assume you know you bet a dollar you know you, it's either make a dollar lose a dollar so it's even money so sometimes you've got to figure out other than just the odds of winning you've got to say well if you're betting you know, if it's, let's say you're betting a dollar and it's a 30% chance of winning, but if you win, you win $10 and you go, okay, well, that's a good bet. So it sometimes it, you know, the payoff is not the same as the risk. And, and that's one of the ways that you can be successful as an investor is you manage your downside. And you, if you have a bigger upside and oftentimes you get opportunities to say, okay, I'm going to risk a dollar, but I can make $20. And it's maybe it's a, you know, one in, for chance that I win the 20 and you go, I'm okay. That's a good bet. So, so you get, so you can't always, you, know, you you've got to go and say, all right, I'm going to try to balance out my, my, my bets, so to speak. If you think of your investments as bets and then you risk equal money. And also you've got to then figure out, well, I've got to risk equal money, but I've got to consider the probabilities because sometimes the payoff is not an equal payoff. So, Sometimes it gets complicated and sometimes there's a bit of, again, there's everyone wants a nice formula, but what you find right. is, okay, there's not quite a formula for this. And if there was a formula, it would be a guess as well. So you've got to yeah. just sit down and say, all right, how, let me try to equal this stuff out where, you know, best I can. And what you find is too, if you really do the research on it, if you're off a little, it doesn't matter that much. So you say, I need to be in the ballpark. And so you can, right. you know, you're, it's, it's horseshoes and atomic bombs and hand grenades. It's not, it's not, you know, a rifle shot. And so you, you say, right. well, let me just get in the neighborhood and, and I'll be okay. I don't want to be too far off, but if I'm a little off, it's okay. And I know, I think, let's say, for example, whatever formula you're using, if your formula says, you know, bet 50%, but one of your principles is not to bet no more than 25% of your net worth, you know, to reduce your risk down to at least. Yeah, 25%. no. And I, and generally like in the trading, in my trading, it's always, yeah. I mean, if I'm risking anything up toward, you know, even 2%, that would be a lot because I would want, I would rather have trading to be lots of good bets instead of just a few good bets. So you, you see right. some people, Aaron, that say, okay, let me, like some people will say, like, okay, um, I've seen some traders that trade quickly. So a fast trading system, mm -hmm. like let's say if I had a, let's say you had two choices. So you had a 70% coin. 
you get to flip it once a month. You go, okay, well, so 70% of whatever your bet is, and it's even money, we'll, we'll even money bet. So you bet a dollar, 70% of the months you're going to make money, 30% you lose. Now, let's say you have a 60% coin and you go, okay, well, that's not as good as my 70%, but you go, okay, but here's the catch. You get to, the, the, you get to flip that 60% coin a thousand times in a month. Well, so right. suddenly, because you get to flip it a thousand times, this law of large numbers, you say, really, this 60% coin, since I get to flip it a thousand times, is a much better deal than the 70% coin. Now, which would you rather do? Well, you'd say, well, I'd rather do both, really. You'd like to do both. So you end up sometimes with, you go, okay, there's the great deal and the good deal, but I get to do the good deal over and over and over. So the velocity of a deal matters too. And that's the the, you know, how often you get to flip the coin and you see some really very successful traders that have done really well. And a big part of their success is that they flip the coin way more often. It's a shorter term bet, but it smooths out their results. And, you know, talking about uh, your own success, um, one of the things I want to try to do is go back in history to understand what was the process like for you to launch your own fund and and be so successful? And I know in um, Michael Covell's book that I read, um, I'm quoting in the book, it said, you know, you know, there was a commodities corporation, there was a manager for the Dean Witter Fund, and they were in the process of raising about 100 million, allocating about eight to 10 traders. Um, I, I vaguely recall it saying somehow you found a flyer from your granddad about Dean Witter. And so did you reach out? To, how, how did this whole thing start with you with, with uh, starting your own Okay, firm? well, so, so we'll back up a little bit before the Commodity Corp deal. But, but what happened was I was in college at Notre Dame studying finance. So, and I was, oh, about two thirds of the way through college. Um, I met Jerry Parker, who's a turtle, who had worked for Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart. And um, he had mentioned to me this idea of, you know, a systematic way, a quantitative trading strategy, basically, and um, with trend following. And my, I, I'm really kind of a one trick pony. I've, I've got I, I'm good at math. I'm a slow reader, a poor speller, and um, but I can really do math very well. So to me, I said, "Well, hey, that fits for me." And I'm, you know, I live in a a town out in the middle of nowhere, um, a nice spot in the middle of nowhere that I wanted to go back to. This the, t the town I'm sitting in now, Canadian Texas, 2,500 people, and we're yeah, we, we used to be 101 miles from the nearest Starbucks. And then they put one 45 miles away in a grocery store. So, so, but we've got, um, so I thought, well, I can live there if I could do something in the markets, but I don't have an edge, but I thought, well, if I could figure this out, then it could work. So I, so that kind of set me on a journey to start studying this. And he was very kind, just to at least give me some risk management ideas and some, and point me in the right direction. He couldn't tell me a lot of it. He couldn't tell me, but he, um, you know, I appreciate him just, basically talking about the idea. So I started working and came up with some trend following ideas and tested them. And then I started saying, Hey, this looks like it'll work. Um, and so I started trading in the fall of 87 during my last semester of school of college. So, okay. so then I got out of college in 88 and I was working for my grandfather. And so one of the key pieces that was really helpful for me that I was lucky to get to have was, I had a job with my grandfather making $2,000 a month. 
um, back in January of 88, but, and he agreed to let me trade on the side. And, and so, you know, I would have, I could put stops in or, you know, it wouldn't take a lot of time. I'd keep an eye on the markets. And, and so I would give him his eight hours a day and then I would work, you know, I'd come in earlier, stay late, or if I'm, you know, either for him or for me. And so, so, um, so I could put 10 hours in a day, give him his eight and get two on my trading and do what I needed to do. So, so that was really important for me. And I was lucky to be, that's a, that's hard to, I don't know. I tell people, I don't know how you duplicate that, but if you can figure out a way to have a day job that pays the bills, which I did, and then be able to trade mm -hmm. and build a track record. And so, so I got that paycheck from him for, for two years and 10 months. And then at, after that okay. point, when I was getting right at the three-year mark, then that's when Commodities Corp, so about two years into it, my granddad brought me this uh, prospectus from the Dean Witter Principal Guarantee Fund 2. And he threw it on my desk and he said, hey, hey, you know, he had this gruff voice. Hey, he said, said you ought to read about these guys. You've done better than them. And um, and I'm like, OK. And I went and looked through it, saw, well, Commodities Corporations working with Dean Witter. And so 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 I called I called Commodities Corporation, got their number and call, just cold called them. Mm. And um, uh -huh. and at the time. It was funny because I wasn't paying attention to the time. It was about five o'clock, almost five Texas time. Well, of course, they're on the East Coast in Princeton, New Jersey. So I called and here Elaine Crocker answered the phone who Elaine is, is, I mean, she was ended up being the big boss there and she's works for more capital. Now she's a terrific person, super smart and was the decision making. So I just kind of stumbled in. I called late enough in the day that all the secretaries were gone and all the gatekeepers and she picked up the phone. So I told, I gave her a quick, mm. you know, my quick three minute speech. I'd been trading for two years. I'd, you know, here's my returns. And so she said, well, um, you know, call the so-and-so to, you know, here in the, tomorrow or whenever. And, and so she, they had kind of a, really a, a, a way to a, like an application on to get in what they called then their trader evaluation program. And so they would mm. look. So I had to give them some performance and I had to show them some simulations that I'd done. And then um, we talked for about four or five, six, it was about eight, it ended up being about eight months. Um, and then they ended up, they gave me a $200,000 account. And I traded that for almost a year and did well. And they liked it. And they said, okay, we'd like to we'd like to bring you into what they call their stable of traders. And, you know, you've passed out of the trader evaluation program and they started, they, over the next couple of years, they probably added about $90 million for me to trade. And, mm -hmm. um, and it was a, it was a really, there's a lot of good camaraderie at commodities corporation. I think anybody that was involved in that, it was, it was a lot of fun because really you were, you were trading for traders and you were in a group. There was kind of this, you know, a, a lot of good camaraderie. There's, you know, 20 to 30 traders that all, you know, were lucky to be part of the group. And we all enjoyed working with Commodities Corporation. And it was, you know, they would have an annual dinner where you'd see all these, you know, you know, legendary traders, you know, when, and so I'm showing up as, you know, a, uh, you know, because at the time, so when 89, I would have been 23 years old. So I'm showing up at these 
these guys that are, you know, the legends, you know, that you just say, wow, these are, this is really cool to see these people. So it was, so it was a really great experience, but it was one really where you had to have, I mean, I ended up, you know, before I could quit my 2000 a month job, I was two years, 10 months into it. And then by that point, I probably mm -hmm. had about almost $10 million under management. And, um, and then fees mm -hmm. back then, see, were two and 20, you know, now with commodities right. corp, they didn't give, they gave us the two, I think it was about two and 15 for commodities corporation, but still that two, you know, 10 million, you're making 200,000 a year. And, um, that was, you know, that, that would pay the bills for me. So, um, you know, even you, you pay your overhead at your firm. And so it was, it's harder. Now, I, and so it was a great opportunity. That's how I started. Now, the thing to try to replicate that now, the hard part, again, is having someone that where you can have a day job, pays the bills and still trade. So that's 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 a trick that I don't I think everyone, if you can figure that out, that's great. Um, so let's say somebody were to follow that strategy, you know, somebody does have a day job, but they're able to trade on the side and build a track record for a year or two. Now, these days, who is the who would they go to or cold call these days to say, hey, look at my track record? Who would be the commodities corp of today? Or what would your suggestion be for an up, up and coming trader who does have maybe a year? Right. Or two and that, and that's record? the challenge is that because there's not a commodities corp today. Um, I do think you might could go to someone who runs a trading shop. And, you know, some of these big trading um, folks and you say, look, here's what I have. Can I ever start out like as a, you know, almost like, you know, with me, with Commodities Corporation and their trader evaluation program. Could you ever give me a little money? Watch me trade. And if you like what I do, I'd come and, you know, work in house, you know, within a bigger group. You know, you look at some of the big um you know, there's, oh, I'd say there's probably 10 big trading firms that have in-house traders. And so now that's, that's hard to do too. Um, I, and I would think, I don't think a two-year track record would be enough. I think it's a minimum of three and maybe as much as five. And so, you know, and at some point, if you get a long enough track record, let's say it's a three-year track record, you, you could go to kind of more kind of family, friends, people and just pitch it, you know, to the people, you know, and you might could raise, you know, five or 10 million bucks and, and, um, you know, and that helps too. But, um, but I think, I mean, it's harder now. It's definitely harder. The, the, so it's harder, uh, you know, the, to, to get, you know, to like, where do you go to have a platform to kind of launch off of like with commodities corporation for me? Okay. So that's problem one. Um, that's harder. The other thing that's harder is they don't pay two and 20 on fees anymore. Now you'd get, you know, like if you go in a shop, they'll do zero and 10 or something, but you don't have the overhead. Mm. So it's, so it could work out, um, you know, working with another firm at like a zero and 10, but, um, but it's, it's harder now. And that's that, that the two problems I see is how do you how do you have a job that pays the bills and then trade on the side, build the track record for three to five years? And then I was I think everybody. Everybody trading would be, um, you know, impatient. You're like, look, I, I you know, 
I used to dislike weekends for 20 years. I disliked weekends and now I'm okay with weekends. I still don't always love them, but because, um, you know, you just like, I can't make money on the weekends. So, so I can't trade right. and the, they, they, you know, call a timeout. And so anyhow, so that's, I, and that's where I've been really blessed and lucky to be able to, you know, play a math game every day. I mean, I used to, you know, my house in Canadians across the street from where I went to first grade and I was, you know, we, I, we did math races on the chalkboard and, and I was, I was the king of it. I was the best in the class and I had a great time in first grade solving my math puzzles and I've got to have a great time in my fifties solving math puzzles and everything in between. And now I get to get paid for it. So that's, so yeah, you, it's really lucky, but it's, but it doesn't pay as well. And it's, it's hard to, it, so the three things it's the first thing I had, which was, yeah, you need a job that pays the bills and then you can trade on the side. Second, you need a launch pad. Where do you go? You know, once you have your three to five year re record, who do you take it to? I think that still exists. Right. It's harder to be a standalone firm because a lot of people won't pay you, you know, like a two and 20, you know, fees have been compressed down. Mm -hmm. um, now some of the best traders still, you know, they could charge, you know, I know traders charging three and 30. And so if you're good enough, you know, and, and so, you know, at some point be good enough to, to be able to pull it off. But, um, I, I never was quite that good. I was good, but not, not good enough to, to do that. But I, but I was good enough to make a nice living doing it. And so, yeah, it's. And talking about a launching pad, is there a different angle in terms of maybe, is there a way to license your portfolio models or, um, you know, maybe there's some investment advisors looking for a sub advisors to outsource their investment management, or maybe even like, like you mentioned, like maybe a separately managed account. Um, is there a different angle to take these well, days? Right? I, th I think you're, I, I think licensing, you won't get paid enough. So I wouldn't license my system. I would try to find a sub advisor and, you know, to be a, you know, and that's where you work with another group, you know, like, um, you know, you think of the big houses, the big, some of the biggest hedge funds that, that have multiple in-house traders. And so you go in-house and you want to just yeah work, you know, and you, you don't necessarily have to be physically in-house, but you could say, all right, I'll manage some money. And they give you an allocation of a larger portfolio. And um, so that to me is the, is a way to do it. Now, the other is if you get a good enough, you know, three to five year record, at some point you just, you know, if you can keep working along and keep your expenses low, I mean, you ultimately get a break and someone gives you an account and you, you know, then you're off and going. So, so at, at some point, I think with a five-year record, you get a long enough record that if it's impressive enough, people, people show up. Got it. And, and talking about that, you know, I, I, you know, like I mentioned, your philosophy and listening to you had a great impact um, on, on me. And I wonder, you know, are you planning to write your own book? Um, I know you're featured in a couple other books, like, for example, Michael's book, Michael Cobell's book. But are you planning to write? You know, your I don't own know. Book? It's Aaron. It's um, I don't have a plan to. I, I think I think Mike Cavell, he's done a great job of, you know, um, 
I, I think to have a variety of traders and have these interviews style. So Mike Cavell's books are great. Um, and, you know, like a Jack Schwager, he did some really good interview type. I like the interview books where they interview traders and you can hear their own words. And so, um, but, you know, I, there's things that, I don't know, I guess you get to an age where maybe you want to start writing things down um, and um, and try to say, you know, hey, here's what I've learned that might help someone else. Um, but um, so at some point it might be fun to do that. But right now I'm not, you know, I, again, I, I don't like writing. <laughs> I like math. If it was, <laughs> can I write a math book? I'm like, Hey, now I might do that. But um, yeah, I'm fine talking and I'm fine doing math. I, the writing is one of my least favorite things. So I'd have to have someone help me do it. So yeah. 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 So, like a ghost writer. so I'd get to talk and they could write it down, but, um, but no, it it's, um, you know, Ray Dalio, it's interesting to hear him cause he, you know, he's writing some books now and he's talked about these three stages of his life where, you know, he felt like he, he's learned yeah. enough and now he's trying to pass it on. And so, so anyhow, Dalio's about, I don't know, 10 or so years older than me. So I might, I might, um, maybe I'll think about it in another 10 years. And uh, talking about traders, and I wonder if there's traders from the past, like, I, you know, some of the book that had influenced me was, um, uh, you know, Jesse Livermore um, and, and even Jesse Livermore book, you know, he has, he had mentioned a couple of traders that were trading in the civil war era, like Dick Dixon G Watts. And I wonder if there were other traders uh, from the past that has influenced you or given you some tidbits or even, you know, I, well, I think, Cavell's books, Mike Cavell, his books are good. I think Jack Swager's books are good. I think the listen to any interview, you know, now in the world of YouTube, you know, you can learn to, you know, I can, I can learn to fix my oven or I can hopefully learn to trade too from YouTube videos of traders. And, you know, let's, you know, there's some, some videos of me on YouTube and, and I, so I think anytime you get the chance to, to listen or read, the words of a trader. Cause I don't like it when someone else interprets the words because I, I hear, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of that, you know, tell, you know, that tell a secret to 10 people down the line and it gets messed up. Well, even the one, the jump of one, there's a lot of things as a trader that you, that are subtle things that maybe you pick up on that someone who did the interview might not pick up on. So, so I've found just listening anytime you can listen to any trader. So, I mean, I, I think there's, there's hundreds of people that, you know, from reading about Warren Buffett, um, you know, I think there's lessons there, even though it's, he doesn't trade at the same velocity that I did. And he even bad mouths hedge funds. There's a lot of things mm -hmm. in investing that he, um, that he's really smart on. I think he's wrong about hedge funds too, in some ways. I think he just doesn't know enough about it, but what he does know a lot about, he's really great at with value investing and Graham Dodd. And, and there's times I do things like that in my life that, you know, where it's just a trade that's going to take a little more time to unfold. But then, you know, I've done from trades from a, you know, sub second trades where we do really, was, well, now they call it high frequency trading. I've done that to, mm -hmm. you know, deals that take 20 years. And, and so I think anybody, I think that has been successful. I think they probably figured out some things that are worth, you know, trying to learn. And, and I've made a lot of money just copying people that are really smarter than me. And I, you know, so 
there's some people mm -hmm. seem to have a aversion to wanting to cop to copy other people, but I'm I'm okay if I can copy success. I'm happy with that. So as just an old country boy, just trying to trying to make a buck and feed my kids and my family. <laughs> so Salem, you know, I really appreciate your your time. Um, you know, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, you know, what's the best way to reach out to you, find out more about you? And in terms of, you know, what are you doing today with your company? Sure. Well, we, foundation? you know, the best place is our website at abrahamtrading.com is, um, has information about our firm and has, has, and it has some different things that I've either articles or videos or things that I've done, um, are on there so they can watch that or listen to that if they want to you know, try to, try to learn what I've learned, which most of it, like I say, I've learned from other people, um, but have tried to put it all together in a package. And then, and then what the main thing we do now, you know, so the, the hedge fund, I stopped doing the hedge fund at the end of July last year. And it was, um, um, and we gave back our clients money, uh, gave back a couple hundred million dollars to our clients. And then, um, and what I wanted to focus on was a this fund that we're doing now is called the Abraham Fortress Fund. And it's got, it's trying to do everything. You know, it's the stocks, bonds, and hedge funds. So it's a little like where if, say, a baseball player quits being the baseball player and becomes the manager of the baseball team. And so that's kind of the way I see this. <laughs> it's, you know, it's probably half the work and um, it's half the people. Um, it's a fun project. It's, um, it's not, it doesn't have the, you know, 24 seven, uh, you know, type of, uh, uh, you know, you're not on alert 24 seven, you've got people that are watching your money. And then really the thing that I like too, is we used to be one piece of say a 20 piece puzzle and people would say, you know, well, what do we mm -hmm. do? And I would try to explain, well, you need some other trade, you need some other hedge funds, you need, you know, and so I would explain to them, but they would always mess up the other 19 pieces. So, so what this allows us to do is to say, look, how would you build a portfolio, Salem? What, you know, hedge funds, you've been doing it for three decades mm -hmm. plus. And so this is, and, and I've got a lot of money in the Fortress Fund between my foundations invested um, almost a hundred percent, you know, 99% in it. Uh, my kids, trust is 90% in it about over half my retirement money's in it. And, um, so it's basically mm -hmm. an opportunity for people just to coattail what I'm doing. And, um, and then it's really geared for foundations and endowments. And I've been on enough investment committees over the last 25 years to see even really smart groups. I'm, I don't always think they do particularly the hedge funds, right? They get too much in stocks and too heavy in stocks and, and they don't do the right hedge funds and they don't, they don't balance it out. Right. So it's, um, yeah, so that's, it's, it works out at about that. The team I've got, you know, is a lot of people that have been with me over 20 years. And, um, so it's a great team. It's just a small team of eight of us. And we, we're, we've got a, a you know, and we don't, the fees are pretty low. The 65 basis points is all we charge. And, and, um, and it's a little like Ray Dalio has it all weather fund, which I think is a neat product too, where it's designed for, you know, uh, it's, it would be similar in a way in that it's, you know, he designed it for kind of uh, a storm proof portfolio 
we're his name all weather. And that's kind of how we tried to do it, our version of that. And um, so, yeah, so we're having fun with it and it's fun to work. You know, if we could play the role of investment advisor for foundations and endowments and give them a good product at an attractive price, it's that's fun because it's nice to make, you know, I like making money, but it's nice making money for people that are doing good things with it. And um, so that's fun. And, you right. know, if you can make money and feel good about how you, you know, what you're doing too. Um, and so that's, yeah, so we're, we're excited to do that and we're, and that's getting some traction. And so we've been working with that, but, um, but, you know, still, I, I hope to be, you know, at some point plugged in, you know, with the markets and watching finance and investments. And, and so that's always, yeah, hopefully I can do that. You know, that's, I, you can't play football or basketball or some sports or whatever, but luckily there's a lot of investors that into their nineties, like my friend Boone Pickens, who we talked about earlier. Yeah. He, he did it till the end. Yeah. So hopefully I can do that too. <laughs>